The passage we're in today is Luke chapter 12, verses 1 through, I think, 36 or something. I'm going to be reading 13 through 21. Someone in the crowd said to him, Teacher, tell my brother to divide the inheritance with me. But he said to him, Man, who made me a judge or arbiter over you? And he said to them, Take care and be on your guard against all covetousness, for one's life does not consist in the abundance of his possessions. And he told them a parable, saying, The land of a rich man produced plentifully. And he thought to himself, What shall I do? For I have nowhere to store my crops. And he said, I will do this. I will tear down my barns and build larger ones, and there I will store all my grain and my goods. And I will say to my soul, Soul, you have ample goods laid up for many years. Relax, eat, drink, be merry. But God said to him, Fool, this night your soul is required of you. And the things you have prepared, whose whose will they be? So is the one who lays up treasure for himself and is not rich towards God. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. God, we thank you for the opportunity we have to be in your word this morning. And our prayer is that as we take some time to think about your word, that your Holy Spirit would do the work that needs to be done in each of our hearts. We pray that you would open our eyes to who you are and what you are doing how we ought to believe, and what that should look like in our life. And we pray that we would be changed as a result. In Jesus' name, amen. Luke chapter 12, verses 1 through 34, it's a relatively long section, so we'll try to efficiently work our way through the passage. I wanted to ask you a quick question before we jumped into uh, the scripture. What do you believe about God? What do you believe about? about God. And there's a number of ways you might answer it, so I'll give you some answers if you're stumped by that one. Uh, you, maybe you believe about God that He is eternal. And what we mean by eternal, it, it's something different to be eternal than to be immortal. Immortal means you were born at some point and you never die, whereas eternal means you had no beginning and you have no ending. So if you're uh, believing what the Bible says about God, you believe He is eternal. He had no beginning and He has no ending. Uh, Perhaps you believe about God, He is the creator of all that is, other than Himself. He has created all that is. So if something is, who created it? God. We believe God is that about God, He's a creator. Uh, Maybe in your Bible you would understand God is transcendent. That means He's above you. He's bigger than you. Another way of thinking, what does it mean to be transcendent? It means He's got a lot of really important stuff going on, and And if he really ranked it out, you might not make the top 10. I mean, he is keeping the sun where it's supposed to be, and your parking spot, eh. right, transcendent. I mean, he's got a lot of big things going on, but he's also imminent, which also means he's close by and he's near. So he's both of these things at the same time. Uh, What else might we believe about God? He's omniscient. He knows everything there is to be known. If it is something that is known, he knows it. He knows more than you. You are not omniscient. Seriously, though, you're not omniscient. I'm just making that clear in case you got there. So these are things we believe about God. If you were to uh, attend a church or maybe visit a new church or a church out of town, something some people might do is you might go to their website and look up their statement of faith. 
because maybe you want to discover before you attend a church, what do they believe about God? That's really, really important. Wouldn't you agree? I, I think it is. However, it's fundamentally different than do you believe in God? That's fundamentally different than do you believe in God? I can say to you from a doctrinal perspective, God is imminent, which means he is near, he is close, he's right there. But then I might ask you this question, do you believe God gives a rip? Those are two very different things. One says, theologically, I know the right answer, God hears me, I've read my Bible, but then when it comes right down to it, do I actually believe he gives two cents about what I have going on in my life? And those are two very different answers. One is, here's what I believe about God. And then the question is, can I count on him? Is he dependable? And I might suggest for many Christians, we can have a very profoundly accurate statement of faith or theological understanding of who God is. But when the lights go out and our head hits the pillow, we're not sure if we can actually depend on him. And today's passage wants us to look at God's love and discover we can depend on Him. He can be trusted. We can count on God. So we're going to look at God's love in a couple of different ways. So first section is verses 1 through 12. God's love. The one who knows you most loves you most. The one who knows you most loves you most. This has become very, very popular nowadays. I see it on TV, and I actually see it in places I visit. People saying they love you. This has become, I'm I'm not used to people telling me they love me. I mean, I am. Don't get me wrong. That sounds terribly, (laughs) terrible. Yeah, I mean, you know, but, but the cashier at Target, you know, or, you know, people use this phrase. I think it's become much more familiar than I'm used to. And, and, and you may hear it, maybe a, a celebrity is, is talking on a, a, a public uh, address, maybe at a, an award ceremony. He said, I love my fans. He said, well, really? You, like you would, you would give up your life for your fans. Whoa, simmer down. So this, this sense of, I love you, man, and, and, and I, I, has become very familiar. And it's, it, it seems like we're using that term more than we used to. And I don't have a major problem with it. It just sort of redefines the terms. But here's the thing. Think about the people in your life who might love you. Maybe even people in this room, family and friends, certainly. But maybe there are people that you are more distantly acquainted with that you would think, well, I think at some level we have a, a relationship of mutual affection that might be described at, at minimally as brotherly or sisterly love. Here's the question you have to ask yourself. Would they love me if they knew me? Would they love me if they, I mean, if they really knew me? Would they love me if they understood what kind of a parent I am? Or maybe more specifically, would they love me if they understood what kind of a parent I was Tuesday? When that one thing went down and it got a little ugly, right? Would they really love me? Or at that point, would our relationship be more defined by... uh, Mutual respect, but some important distance. Would people love you if they really knew what was going on in your heart or what was going on in the secret places of your life? 
Jesus here in this passage is going to talk about hypocrisy and talk about the secrets of the human heart. And we, I might sum it up this way. God sees and knows more than we dare admit, and God cares more deeply than we dare imagine. God sees and knows more about our hearts than we would dare admit. If it's going on, He knows about it. And also, and during that, God cares more deeply than we dare to imagine. Let's look at verses 1 through 3 of Luke 12. In the meantime, when so many thousands of people had gathered together that they were trampling one another, He began to say to His disciples, Beware of the leaven of, Pharis- of the Pharisees, which is hypocrisy. Verse 2, nothing is covered up that will not be revealed or hidden that will not be known. Therefore, whatever you have said in the dark shall be heard in the light, and what you have whispered in private rooms shall be proclaimed on the rooftops. Hypocrisy. That's the leaven of the Pharisees, and he says, beware of the leaven of the Pharisees, which is hypocrisy. What is hypocrisy? It's not terribly complicated. It's when the condition and motivations and aspirations of our inner person, our heart and our soul, are different than how we present ourselves to the people around us. Hypocrisy is simply when the motivations and schemes of my heart and the inner person Maybe the activities that are unseen by others but done in hidden away places when those things are inconsistent with how I present myself outwardly. When what is going on in my heart is different than what is going on and what I am presenting to the people around me. That is hypocrisy. And, and I don't want you to feel bad about that. So if you're in this room today... You're a hypocrite. You're welcome. So now we're, we're free of that burden of figuring it out if we are or not. One of the fundamental conditions of the fallen human soul is we tend to hide away with that which we don't want people to see, and we present that which makes, look, look, makes ourselves look best. That's, this is normal. And what he is warning us is this is not the way you want to have it. You don't want to have your life marked by hypocrisy, because hypocrisy reveals what we believe about God. Hypocrisy reveals our theology. If I nest away in the hidden recesses of my heart, deeply held affections for that which is evil, my theology has somehow become warped to believe God doesn't know about it. If I have activities that I participate in that I have somehow walled off from the observing eyes of those I care about, and therefore also think God is somehow unable to see these things, my theology has become warped. Because what does God see? He sees it all. You can be a hypocrite and fool us all day long. We're very, very nice people. I mean, almost everybody here is nice people. I'm trying not to look. I'm kidding. So if you tell us something about yourself, we're going to say, hey, that sounds great. Most of the time, people are going to believe you. God, though, knows precisely what is going on in the motivations of the inner person. Nothing is covered up that will not be revealed. And our theology seems to think, what we think about God is, I can have things that are contrary to God in my heart. I can convince others that those things don't exist, and they are never going to come to light. And Jesus is saying... That which you have covered up will, in fact, be revealed. 
And you say, well, he's talking to the Pharisees. That's right. He's warning about the, the hypocrisy of the Pharisees. Who is he talking to? He began to say to his disciples, be aware of the hypocrisy that is lurking in your own heart. There is nothing contrary to God in your heart that on a particular day in the future will not be exposed to the light of day. Exposed to the light of day. You've had those conversations. Somebody is telling something about how awful their life is, and it probably is awful, and in your own mind, you're thinking, wow, that sounds terrible. And all these things are because you make terrible decisions. Have you ever thought that when somebody's sharing something with you? No, of course you wouldn't. I'm talking about the people who aren't here this morning. Somebody is sharing something about how hard their life is, and in your outside, you're going, oh, wow, hmm, oh, did I do that right? I've been practicing it. Oh. <laughs> Jeff has been helping me be more empathetic. And on the inside, you're saying, your life would be easier if you weren't such an idiot. You make terrible decisions. Of course you're broke. Of course you have no job. Of course your wife left you. I would leave you. That's, I mean, that's it. You're laughing because you've done it. Good. It's not me. I was worried when I gave this message, you'd be like, man, that Greg has issues. I do, but I'm trying to hide them. One day, someday, the full extent of that conversation, both the inner and the outer conversation, will be known. That's kind of, does that make the sweat go down the back of your neck a little bit? If it doesn't, you're not reading it right. It will be known. Therefore, whatever you have said in the dark shall be heard in the light. And we've all done this, sitting around with friends, maybe sitting around the table, playing parcheesi, whatever it is. And you say, did you hear what Bill did? And then now we have a 20-minute conversation about Bill and his ability uh, to really ruin his life. And Bill's not there. What do we call that in the Bible? It's a fancy theological word for that. What is it? Gossip. Oh, you know all about it. We don't have to cover it. Good. <laughs> One day, that conversation of gossip will include Bill. And he said, well, maybe this is just exposed to the Lord. Maybe it says we'll be revealed. I don't know what to tell you about this. It's going to be exposed. It will be known. And he said, well, I don't know that I want that to happen. That makes me a little bit fearful. Do you know what we call that? The fear of the Lord. When God is going to do something to motivate us to have a life of obedience, not only outwardly but inwardly, the Bible calls that the fear of the Lord. And if I read my Bible right, that's a good thing. That's a good thing. That's the beginning of wisdom. God is the true judge. God already knows everything in you. And God loves you. Here's the thing when I tell you this. Jesus is making it quite plain. There is a day where everything you have said and thought about others in secret will be known. I don't have the ability in this text to tell you it won't include that other person. Maybe you can do the mental gymnastics to figure this out, that maybe this is just between you and God. It's already just between you and God. Here's what's funny about worried, being worried after reading this passage. You mean someday my spouse or my children or my parents are going to know what I thought? Here's what's funny about that. You know what's really funny about that? We're worried about what they think. When we should be worried, God already knows. Isn't that funny? That's why we don't want to be known. We just don't want Bill to find out. And here's what's funny. The creator of the universe 
He already knows. The last thing we should be worried about is what Bill thinks. It doesn't matter. Hypocrisy is treasuring away in our own hearts things that are inconsistent with what is outside of us, hoping that everybody else is fooled. We don't have time to go into it, but one author put it this way. He said, the trouble with having hearts that are contrary to what people see is this. If people love us because what we present to them is different than us, the reality is we don't feel loved. If I present to you something that is different than me, you love that projection I've put out there. And the problem is I can't feel loved when I'm doing that because I don't feel like you love me. I feel like you love the fake person I'm presenting to you. So another real pitfall of hypocrisy is it creates a culture and a community of believers like this where nobody actually feels loved. We feel like people around us love the person I'm showing up and playing. I'm acting. But if they really knew what was going on, they wouldn't love me. The good news is Jesus does. And those filled with the Spirit will. Let's look at verses 4 through 7. God's love. The one who knows you most loves you most. I tell you, friends, do not fear those who can kill the body and after that have nothing more than they can do. I will warn you to whom you should fear. Fear him who, after uh, he has killed, has authority to cast you into hell. Yes, I tell you, fear him. Are not five sparrows sold for two pennies? And not one of them is forgotten before God. Why, even the hairs of your head are all numbered. Fear not. You are of more value than many sparrows. Why would we worry about what people think? What's the worst thing somebody could do to you? Kill you. That's the worst thing he's saying that somebody could kill you, do to you is kill you. God already knows everything that is going on in you. And this passage is telling us he is the true judge. He is the one who can determine at the end of your life whether or not you are righteous enough to move into eternity with him or be condemned to separation from him. The only way to be assured that you avoid condemnation and separation from God is to be as righteous as God is. That's, it's the only way to do it. So all you need to do is from the moment of your conception until the moment of your death, never do anything naughty, always do everything right, and always do everything right precisely when he wanted you to do it. Not an hour late, not a week late, not after you struggle with the will of God in your life and decide to do it. Always do what God wants, when he wants you to do it, and never do anything naughty. If you are able to do that, then you will be able to go into glory based on your own righteousness. If you are not able to do that, you will be condemned to separation from God in ever, forever, in hell. So the only way we can do it is to make ourselves righteous, which frankly I've met some of you, it's not happening. <laughs> or have somebody give you his righteousness that is as righteous as God, and that's precisely what Jesus did. He came and lived his life here perfectly. He never did anything wrong. He always did everything right. And he always did what the Father willed it precisely when the Father wanted it done. And when his life was completed, he said, it is finished. And all who put their faith in Jesus receive from him his righteousness. He takes upon himself our sin and disobedience and the judgment we should have endured 
He gives to us his righteousness. So then when we die and step into glory, God says, why should I let you in? And you say, I got Jesus' righteousness. And God says, good for you. Get on in here. That's how that works. So uh, Jesus is saying, God is the one who determines if you are righteous to get into glory. Why are we worried about what people think? Nobody on planet Earth is able to condemn your soul. What we ought to do is have our fear properly calibrated. It is annoying when people don't like us. It is frustrating when people look down on us. It is, all of, it is hurtful when, when people think poorly of us, even if it's accurate. But what Jesus is saying, all of those things may be true. What we ought to worry about is what God thinks. And look what God thinks about us. Verse 6. Are not five sparrows sold for two pennies? i, I got to be honest. I have no idea. I've never bought a sparrow. Not one of them is forgotten before God. His point is this. Sparrows are not valuable from a financial perspective. Not one single sparrow who has ever existed did so in the absence of God's intentional thought and understanding. Not one. Every sparrow who has ever lived, God has seen hatched and has seen end. Every single one. And then he says, think about your own value in comparison to a sparrow. You are more valuable than, than, than the sparrows. Even the heads, uh, the hairs of your head are all numbered. Meaning, God knows you in particular. Humans, unlike any other part of creation, are made in the image of God and bestowed with responsibility, which is to rule and reign his creation, which we messed up. So what Jesus is saying, he who knows every thought, motivation, and scheme hidden away in your human heart, that God knows you in particular and cares for you deeply. The one who knows you most loves you most. The Bible tells us about Jesus who died for us. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. The reading of that verse is critically important. It's not, once we demonstrated great potential, Christ died for us. No, no, no. While you are still a sinner, Jesus dies for you. The one who knows you most, loves you most. Let's read verses 8 through 12 if you don't mind. And I tell you, everyone who acknowledges me before man, the Son of Man, will also acknowledge before the angels of God. The one who denies me before man will be denied before the angels of God. This is Jesus, of course, speaking. Everyone who speaks a word against the Son of Man will be forgiven, but the one who blasphemes against the Holy Spirit will not be forgiven. And when they bring you before the synagogues and the rulers and the authorities, don't be anxious about how you should defend yourself or what you should say. The Holy Spirit will teach you in that hour what you ought to say. The question here, he wants us to diagnose our heart condition. How we interact with the world around us helps demonstrate how we are relating to God himself. If Jesus has saved our soul from our sin, if Jesus, we recognize, has given us his righteousness in his life, then what he is saying is that will be normally understood to be outwardly observable. Why would we want to deny knowledge and relationship of the one who has given us eternal life and his 
righteousness. How you interact with the world around you, how we interact with the world around us and in those relationships reveals something about the nature of our relationship with God. And Jesus is simply saying, I would expect you to have forward, have out front the reality that God has given you righteousness in life. The person who denies here is not merely the one who is a moment of weakness, denies the reality of their Christian faith. We know people in the Bible who, has done, who have done this. And can you think of anybody who denied Jesus in the Bible? Judas? Yeah, that ended poorly. It's a good example. Who else? Judas only did it once. Peter said, oh, I don't know that guy. Oh, no, I really don't know that guy. I love the last one. He calls down curses upon himself. I don't know that guy at all. So, so Peter did this three times, and each time he got better at it. So what this isn't saying, that in a moment of weakness, maybe somebody say, hey, you go to church? Oh, yeah, but you know, that's just what I do on Sundays. Maybe in a moment of weakness and, and, and fear and intimidation, we sort of minimize the relationship we have with Christ. That's not what he's talking about here. He's saying, on balance, when you look at your life, is your life a life that recognizes the righteousness and work of Jesus? And is that interacting in the world around you, in the, in the lives of the people around you? Or is your life a life of denial? And God knows what's going on in our human heart. What Jesus is calling us to do is recognize that those who have received the righteousness of Christ, our life should be a testimony of the risen Savior. And that's exactly what he's getting at there in verse 10. There's a very complicated verse there. It's, everyone who speaks against the Son of Man will be forgiven, but the one who blasphemes against the Holy Spirit will not be forgiven. Sometimes called the unpardonable sin. Is that sometimes what you call it? You say, well, what is that? How do I know I haven't done it? Right? Is that what we ask? What is that? And how do I know I haven't done it? It's what's funny. Let me just, this is an aside, which you're welcome. That's always entertaining. We don't ask that about other sins. Yeah, which of the sins are deadly? Which of the sins will condemn you to hell? That would be all of them. But here's the one we want to make sure we haven't done. Because the others, you know, we're kind of okay. I can manage that. (laughs) I think we've got a, a messed up view of sin if there's just the one we're worried about. What is the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit? Very, very complicated. Let me just put it to you this way, and then we're going to move on. Are you ready? If you're worried you've done it, you haven't. If you have, you don't care. Because that what it is, ultimately, it's to say, Holy Spirit, I don't give a rip. I don't think Jesus is a thing, and I don't care. So if you're worried about whether or not you've done the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit, guess what? Then you haven't, because that means the Holy Spirit is still doing a work on your heart. If you have done it, you don't care. You'll do it again. Because it means you've already gotten to that place where you say, God is not for me. I'll make my own way. I don't need Jesus. It's that ultimate move of the heart where we reject God and his gospel and say, no, thank you. Your heart condition needs to be informed by the reality that God knows what's going on in your heart. And that creates two uh, sort of things that we hold in tension. Number one, we realize that this morning, no matter what was going on in our heart and our mind and the motivations of our flesh and the scheming of our soul, God knew all about it. So on one hand, it creates in us a, a healthy and compelling fear of the Lord. I want the Lord to see the, what's going on in my heart and be pleased with it 
not offended by it. On the other hand, even though he knows precisely all of the things going on in your heart, even in this moment, when you're trying to think of all kinds of reasons why I don't know what I'm talking about, he loves you anyway. No matter what's going on, he knows all about it, unlike any other person in your life. Every relationship in your life, regardless of how close, there are still things about you that have not yet been disclosed. And in some cases, maybe ought not to be. God is the one relationship in your life where he knows everything, and he still says, I love you, and I send my son for you. There are no secrets with God, and there is no need for a secret with God because he loves us anyway. Do we believe God knows our heart? That's what we believe about God. Do we believe that he loves us anyway? That tells us if we believe in God. Our theology tells us we know what he, he knows everything. But if I can, even in the reality of the condition of my heart, rest in the reality that he loves me, then now I am depending on him, and that's how we believe in God. Okay, let's go to the next section. This is the part that uh, Seth read, God's love. First of all, let me remind you, the one who knows you most loves you most. Secondly, the one who you owe the most gives you the most. God's love, the one you owe the most, gives you the most. And what Jesus wants us to see here in this section is what we believe about God and how we uh, live out the reality of our belief in God is more than just merely a motivation and a, a, a movement of the inner person in the, in the heart. He wants us to understand it is also reflected in how we interact with the world around us, in particular in this case, how we look at the stuff of our life. We might wonder what it means to have a good deal. If you're going to make a good purchase, how do you know if you have a good deal? Someone has said it this way, a good business deal is when nobody gets everything that they want. Everybody gets a little bit of what they want and a little bit of what they don't want. Another person put it this way when he's talking about working with customers. He says, if you give customers what they want, you will always have customers. That's what he said. We might think of a transaction when we're making a purchase as something that is mutually beneficial. If we have an item that we want to purchase and we either need the item or want the item, we will determine what the appropriate value that we're willing to give up of our other stuff to get that thing. And, and so we want to uh, assume that our life is uh, filled with these sort of transactions that are mutually beneficial. This is not how God works. He just gives us all his stuff. He just gives us all of his stuff. God's love, the one that you owe the most to, the one you are indebted to most deeply, is the one who has given you the most of his stuff. That's what God's love is like. Is like. Let's look at verses 13 to 21. Uh, Seth uh, already read it, so we will just try to highlight it. Someone in the crowd said, Teacher, tell my brother, brother to divide my, the inheritance uh, with me. Note uh, carefully, this isn't unusual to ask a rabbi to do something like this. Uh, Jesus, being a well-known rabbi, it wouldn't have been unusual for somebody to say, Hey, can you help my brother and I figure out how to work out the inheritance deal? It doesn't really tell us what the conflict was. Maybe he's the younger brother. Maybe he's the older brother. Maybe he was being cut out of the inheritance. We don't know the exact problem that was going on. And frankly, it doesn't matter, does it? You know why I know it doesn't matter? 
If it mattered, it would have been included. It's not included, so therefore it doesn't matter. Notice what the guy asked Jesus. He said, tell my brother to divide the inheritance with me. Is he asked Jesus, asking Jesus to give his input at, as to what is appropriate? No, he's asking Jesus to agree with him. Hey, Jesus, would you tell my brother I'm right? So, so he's not making any uh, qualifiers. He, hey, tell my brother to divide the inheritance with me the way it ought to be done according to my perspective. And Jesus answers this question, man, who made me judge or arbitrator over you? That's hilarious. The reality that you created these yahoos? <laughs> Jesus is saying, who made me judge or arbitrator over you? The fact is, you are. He is the judge. He is the ultimate judge. And really, Jesus is speaking to this guy's heart. He's not looking for fairness. He's not looking for Jesus to make things right. He's looking for Jesus to make things the way he wants them. And so, therefore, Jesus gives this warning. Listen closely. Take care. That means you need to intentionally pay attention. Take care. Be on your guard against all covetousness, for one's life does not consist in the abundance of his possessions. So, Jesus gives a very practical warning to be aware of envy and the, the things it reveals about the human heart. So just a couple of things about envy and about greed. This is fun stuff. Here we go. What is envy? Envy is wanting other people's stuff. So you might think about it this way. I've got a little house. I've got a car. I've got some clothes. I've got food to eat. And I can look at the condition of my life and say, you know what? This is okay. This is, this is good. I've got a house I can live in. I've got a car that I can get to work. I've got a job. I've got a little bit of food in the pantry. You know, this is pretty good. And then we look next door. Oh, this is lame. This is lame. Now, what has changed? Nothing's changed. It's just all of a sudden I realize when my point of reference is no longer everything's okay, my point of reference is what could be, now everything is not okay. This starts when you're two. Okay? And it gets worse. We just get better at making it more polite. That's all. We get better at making it more polite. Uh, Luxury vehicles are nowadays called aspirational vehicles. I used to have a picture of a particular car I wanted. I won't say which car it is. It's embarrassing now. Um, on my wall, and I said, you know, someday I'm going to work hard enough and I'm going to be able to buy that car. It's called aspirational uh, car. So <laughs> a two-year-old who wants another kid's train is aspirational. That's what that is. You know, someday I'm going to have that train. You know what? That day is today. <laughs> I'm going to take that train. That's what that is. Okay, so, so uh, what, what it is, is these, this decision that, maybe if I can simplify this notion of broadly greed and envy, when I have this, everything will finally be good. That when I have this, I don't know what it might be, everybody is different. Everybody is different. Some, some people, it's a number in the, the bank account, some people, it's a particular residence, some people, it's particular car it was for me at that moment in my life. If I were able to ever afford that car, you know, I think everything would be pretty cool. And so greed and envy is that condition of the human heart that when everything is in this particular way, everything will be okay. How, I don't know, has anybody ever accomplished that? Oh, certainly there have. I've done a number of things. I said, man, I never thought I'd be able to pull that off. And how long did that feeling of it's okay last? Not very long. In fact, once you get to that moment, you realize the journey of getting there was actually the more enjoyable element of actually arriving, because once you arrive, so the key is what you want to do with your life, this is life advice time, peak at the end, 
Don't peak too soon. Peak at the end. Last day on earth. That's what Rockefeller said. I want to spend my last dollar on my last day. Right? This is a, a denial of what's going on in our heart. And Jesus says, be careful. Be careful. It won't ever give you what you think it will give you. Don't find your rest. Don't find your confidence. Don't find your identity. In, in the things of this world, whether it's great number of things or small number of things, depending and resting on stuff is just, it's not merely materialistic. That's too small a thing. It's just short-sighted because it ignores the reality of who God is. That's all. It's, it's just the inability to properly value things for what they really, uh, the value that they, that they actually have. It's a poor valuation skill. If you visit a developing country, you might uh, drive by a, an area in which refuse is disposed, and you might notice people who are working through that area of disposal identifying items that they may either be able to use in their, per, in their life or they may be able to sell on the streets uh, to create revenue. And you and I visiting that country would say, why would anybody spend time going through a heap of what others have thrown away? That doesn't, there's no value in there. And the reason is because the things that we have have a high enough value that those things don't seem valuable. And all Jesus is trying to say, the whole world is that. There is something of greater value. And at some point, we decided to fight over the, what is here, and we've improperly valued what this world offers. You're your, who you are is not defined by your stuff, is what Jesus says. There's a number of ways. Some of us, we need enough stuff so we don't have to worry anymore. Guess what? It doesn't, go, doesn't work that way. The Bible tells us the more you have, the more you worry. You don't believe me, so you're going to keep trying. Good luck with that. Another one is, is this sense of, of confident identity. I know I am good at my job. I know I am good at living life because I have accomplished a certain amount resource-wise. That's, so that's an identity thing. I know I am a good person who's doing good work and working hard because of what I have. Here's the problem with this. I know some really, really talented people who are broke. And I know some people who couldn't run a business out of a wet paper sack who the ball just went their way. And you know people like this too. Now, sometimes it's skill, and obviously it's the blessing of God. If we find our identity in our stuff, it will always leave us wanting. That's all Jesus is warning about. He's not telling you to be broke. He's not telling you any, he's saying just have a proper valuation. So he tells the story about the rich guy. Look at verse 16. The land of a rich man produced plentifully. Is that bad? Oh, that's awesome. Read the Old Testament. In fact, that would be a blessing. Really a demonstration of God's work. Then he thought to himself, what shall I do? I have nowhere to store my crops. Is that a fair question? It's a fantastic question. This is a guy who's insightful. I got this many crops. I got this many barns. Does the math. I got a problem. I got a barn problem. 18, he said this. I will do this. I'll tear down my barns. I'll build larger ones. And there I will store my grain and my goods. Any problem here? Now, a smart farmer. Smart farmer, if he doesn't store his goods in a barn, what's going to happen to him? Rain's going to get on him, they're going to mildew, they're going to go bad. So far, any problems with this guy? This is what we call a good farmer. That's what we call. The problem is verse 19 when he starts talking to his soul. I will say to my soul, soul, well done, soul. You have ample goods laid up for you many years. Relax, 
eat, drink, and be merry. How is his soul finding rest? He's got big barns, and his big barns are full. So therefore, having big barns and big barns that are full, my soul finds rest. There is no longer anything to worry about, soul, because I got big barns. Verse 20, problem. Barns don't save your soul. God says to him, fool. Here's the thing. He is not a foolish farmer. He's a foolish person talking to his soul. From a farming perspective, he knows what he's doing. From a person who's talking to his soul, he's a fool. This night, your soul will be required of you. What's going to happen to your barns then? Doesn't matter. You're toast. You're a fool. Your barns didn't provide for your soul what you thought they would provide for your soul. And before you get to uh, think this guy too lightly of this guy, Jesus is warning us. This is normal. This is the normal inclination of the human heart. If I've got enough of stuff, whatever that is for you, my soul will be at rest. And Jesus saying, no, no, no. The only place to find rest is, is, is in the one who knows the number of hairs on your head. The one who knows you completely and loves you anyway. And the one who has given you more than anyone else. Look at verse 22. Therefore I tell you, do not be anxious about your life, what you will eat, nor about your body, what you will put on. Life is more than food, the body more than clothes. Consider the ravens. They neither, neither sow nor reap. They neither store in a barn or a house, yet God feeds them. The ravens. Yeah, they feeds them at the campgrounds. Better have your stuff in a cooler. Which of you, by being anxious, can add a single hour to the span of his life? What's the answer to that? How many of you, by being worried, can make your life longer? None. Zero. You are unable to make your life longer. If then you are not able to do this small thing, why are you anxious about anything else? Consider the lilies. They neither toil nor spin. Yeah, I tell you, they were dressed better than Solomon. Verse 28, if God clothes the grass this way, which today is alive and is tomorrow thrown into the furnace, how much more will he clothe you of little faith? Do not seek what you're to eat and what you're to drink, nor be worried for all the nations of the world seek after these things, and your Father knows that you need them. Listen, verse 31. Listen. Instead, seek his kingdom, and these other things will be added to you. So he, what he wants us to do is take that desire that farmer had for his barns and redirect our heart to have that same kind of earnestness for peace. But instead of directing that earnestness, to the things of this world, to instead direct that earnestness to the kingdom of God. And say, if I pursue God with the same level of intention and earnestness that I pursue peace through the stuff of this world, the difference is God will actually give me peace. He will provide that which is needed. Verse 32, fear not, little flock. It is your Father's good pleasure to give you the kingdom. Did you hear that? What is God going to give you? Everything he's got. Everything he's got. What did Adam and Eve get? They got planet earth. Good for them. What do you get in Christ? 
everything else. If it's in the kingdom, it's yours. So what Jesus is saying is if you are in me by faith, you are heir to the kingdom of God. If God owns it, it's yours, and you're worried about your barn? It just doesn't, it doesn't make any sense is what Jesus is. Now, of course it makes sense from the perspective of what it looks like to live in this world. I'm sorry, but i got to have lunch today. Right? And Jesus is simply saying, of course, God knows you need lunch. Does God know you need lunch? Of course he does. Seek first his kingdom, and he's going to handle whatever needs to be handled. But if our heart is bent on finding rest in the things of this world, I guarantee you it will not find the rest it's looking for. It won't. Maybe momentary. Maybe briefly. There might be flashes of hopes and peace, but it always fades so quickly that once again we're pursuing this anxious pursuit of this world that never gives us rest. Fear not, little flock. This is verse 32 and 33. Fear not, little flock. It's your Father's good pleasure to give you the kingdom. Sell your possessions. Give to the needy. Provide yourselves with money bags that do not grow old, with treasure in the heavens that does not fail, where no thief approaches and no moth destroys. Verse 34, listen. Where your treasure is, there will your heart be also. He's saying there at the end, verse 34, that which you consider is most valuable is where your heart will be. That which you consider most valuable is where your heart will be. God withholds from us, because of the work of Christ, what we ought to receive, which is condemnation. And in Christ, he withholds condemnation and gives us what we don't deserve, his entire kingdom. Understand, if he wanted to, he could have just merely saved us and then put us in the corner, right? I mean, he could have said, okay, I'll send Jesus, save you, forgive you from your sins, and then I'm going to create a a desert, and you'll hang out in the sand. But he didn't do that. Why didn't God do that? Why didn't God just save us from our sin because he's kind of nice and and then sort of stick us in the corner? Any any ideas? Because he's nice. That's what he's like. He doesn't want to save people to merely have them be miserable. He wants to save us and give us his kingdom because that's what he's into. I have no idea why he is. I have no idea why he's that way. I thank him profoundly, though, that he is that way, that he is generous and kind to even people like us. He gives us what we don't deserve, which is his kingdom. And all Jesus is asking us to do is take a few minutes Look at the condition of our heart and say, what do I think is most valuable in my life? What do do I treasure? And Jesus is just simply, takes a moment, and if it's not the kingdom, just be honest. God already knows, and ask him to change your heart, that you might properly value the things of this world in contrast with the things of the kingdom of God. Do you believe the kingdom is worth more? then it won't bother you when the time comes for you to set aside some of the stuff of this world for kingdom purposes. Let me put it this way, and we'll close with this. Sell your possessions, give to the needy, provide for yourselves money bags that do not grow old, with treasure in heavens that that do not fail, where no thief approaches and no moth destroys. This has been sort of twisted throughout Christian history. We had people taking vows of poverty. If you want to take a vow of poverty, that's fine. i got a problem with that. won't get you to heaven. How do you get to heaven? You trust Jesus. 
right? It's not that complicated. You trust Jesus. He makes you righteous. Taking a vow of poverty doesn't make you righteous. will make you broke. Maybe that's what God wants for you. That's fine. What Jesus wants us to do is think about, wise, as, think about our stuff as a, as a smart investor thinks about stuff. He says, okay, I got, I got cash. Uh, maybe I got retirement. Maybe I got a, an asset. And this thing is now this value. Maybe it's worth $10,000. But if I take this and buy this other asset that's worth even more, 10 years from now, I'm going to have more. Isn't that what investing is? Say, I'm going to take some cash, maybe earned at work. I'm going to put it in a mutual fund. Maybe over the course of 30 years, it's going to make 6%, 6% gain over time, right? Am I... Did I lose you this? I didn't realize this was a personal finance class. Come on, folks. Time, value, and money. You know how this works. And, and everybody does this. Maybe you don't do it. Maybe your employer does it for you. They take a little bit of your money and they throw it in. The, hey, in 30 years from now, you're going to have more than you started with. That's called investing. Jesus says, that's a really great idea. Why don't you take something that's worthless and won't last very long at all, like maybe the span of your life, and trade it in for something that never goes away? Does that sound like a, a smart investment? No, it's really, really... What if you could take something that's basically worthless, you could clamor over the refuse dump that is this world, collect some of these worthless trinkets, and exchange these things in for things in the kingdom of God never, that never end, that you will have for all of time. That is a really, really good investment. That's all Jesus is saying. He's saying here, listen, provide for yourselves money bags that don't grow old. Take your money here that... that that wastes away. What was the inflation this year? Yeah, ten percent, somewhere in there, depending on your what you spend your money on. Hey, guess what? You're losing money without even trying. Good for you. Everybody's got a habit, right? And Jesus said, "Why don't you get stuff out of this world and stick it in a place where there's no inflation, where there's no moth, there's no thief?" He's not asking you to do something. I, I, I hesitate to say it this way, but I'm going too many. He's not asking you to do something spiritual. He's not asking something to do something that's abundantly reasonable. Is when opportunity arises, say, wait, I can take some of this stuff out of my barn and turn it into stuff that lasts forever in a barn that I'm going to see someday. That's just smart. That's all he's calling us to do. God's love. The one who knows you most, loves you most, the one you owe the most, gives you the most. That's what God's love is like. Three quick questions and then we'll close. Who are you trying to impress with your life? If you want to impress people like the Pharisees did and like all people really do, you will have some success. If your life is an effort to impress people, you will in, in fact have some success. If your life is an effort to impress God, you will fail miserably. God is not impressed with you. He loves you anyway. He's impressed with Jesus. So take Jesus, put him in your heart, and they say, God, are you impressed? He goes, oh yeah, I'm impressed with my son who is in you. If you want to impress people, you're going to have some success. If you want to impress God, the only way is to be in Christ because God is only impressed with his son, Jesus. I love you. God loves you. He's not impressed. So let's get off of that train, trying to show off for God. And instead, let's show off his son, Jesus.
I'm going to skip the middle one. Last one. One of the fundamental ways that we rebel against God day in and day out is we still retain within us a distaste for depending on the Lord. There is something about the fallen human condition that we get from Adam and Eve that we would rather work hard for the trinkets we can earn than take the glorious bounty God is giving away for free. There's something about us that it is, there's a distaste for depending on the Lord. We would, have, we would rather have the, the very little that we can earn and get credit for it than to have the much from God that is only attributable to his generosity. So what we do because of that is we call what God has provided little and say what we have provided is the much because we value it because we earned it. And what God wants us to do is realize as those who've been made in his image, he fills us with peace and joy when we let go of our stuff and simply rest in him. God's love, the one who knows you most, loves you most, the one you owe the most, gives you the most. I'm sorry we went uh, so long today. I am a little sorry this time. I know normally I say I'm not sorry at all. I'm a little sorry, but it was a long passage. Let's pray. God, we thank you for your kindness to us. God, we thank you that you love us even though you know what's going on in our hearts. You know the motivations of our hearts. You know the things that we have hidden away hoping that you and others won't see. You know the secret things of our lives that are undisclosed. And while your Holy Spirit will pursue us and show us through conviction those things we need to confess, nonetheless, Lord, you love us anyway, that while we were still sinners, you died for us. We thank you, God, that you know us completely and thoroughly, and you love us anyway. And God, we thank you that even though we owe you everything, our life, our souls, everything about our life, even though we are in debt to you, you have given us your kingdom. God, we would pray in these moments as we think about what you are like, that we would abandon the lies that our minds holds on to, that you are, are cheap and you are grumpy. And instead, God, we would rest in your kindness and your generosity. I would pray, Lord, that this morning someone would put their rest in you through faith in Jesus. And I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Why don't you stand up as we uh, close with a song?